not feeling really hot today, so I figured I would read to you guys to see if it would make me and y'all feel better. So, I didn't realize when I put out my little uh, listener discretion that it was it was starting to get into the trial. Um, next couple of chapters are going to include a lot of racist terms and themes. It's uh, the part of the book where Atticus is the defense lawyer to a black man accused of raping a white woman. And I, I, I guarantee you that all of this is necessary to make the story. You have to understand the time and the date which the story takes place. So, if you don't want to listen, turn me off. So, I'm saying now, listener discretion advised. Atticus is feeble. He was nearly 50. When Jim and I asked why he got so old, he said he started late when we reflected upon his abilities and manliness. He was much older than the parents of our school contemporaries. There there was nothing like Jim and I could say about him when our classmates said, My father. Jim was football crazy. Atticus never too, was never too tired to play keep away, but when Jim wanted to tackle Atticus, he'd say, I'm too old for that, son. Our father didn't do much of anything. He worked in an office, not in a drugstore. He didn't drive a dump truck for the county. He was not a sheriff. He didn't farm, work in a garage, or do anything that could be possibly arouse the admiration of anyone. Besides that, he wore glasses. He was nearly blind in his left eye, and he said left eyes were the tribal curse of the finches. Whenever he wanted to see something, he had to turn his head and look from, from his right eye. He did not do things our school playmates' fathers did. He never went hunting. He did not play poker or fish or drink or smoke. He was in the living room and read. These, with these attributes, however, he would not remain inconspicuous as he wished him to. That year, the school buzzed with the talk about him defending Tom Robinson, none of which was complimentary. After my bout with Cecil Jacobs, when I committed myself as a policy of cowardice, word got around that Scout Finch wouldn't fight anymore. Her daddy wouldn't let her. This is not entirely correct. I would not fight publicly for Atticus, but the family was private ground. I would fight for anyone from my third cousin upward tooth and nail. Francis Hancock, for example, knew that. When he gave us our air rifles, Atticus wouldn't teach us to shoot, so Uncle Jack instructed us in the rudiments thereof. He said, Atticus isn't interested in guns. Atticus said to Jim one day, I'd rather shoot ten cans in the backyard, but you know, but I know you'll go after birds. Shoot all the blue jays you want, but if you can hit them. But remember, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. That was the only time I ever heard Atticus say it was a sin to do anything. And I asked Miss Maudie about that. 
Your father's right, she said. Mockingbirds don't do one thing but make music for us to enjoy. They don't eat up people's gardens. They don't nest in the corn cribs. They don't do one thing but sing their little hearts out for us. And that is why it is a sin to kill a mockingbird. Miss Marty, this is, this is an old neighborhood, isn't it? Been here longer than the town. No, I mean the folks on our street are all old. Me and Jim's only children around here. Mr. Boy's close on a hundred. Miss Rachel's old, and so are you and Atticus. I don't call fifty old, Miss Maudie said tartly. Not being wheeled around yet, am I? Neither's your father. But I must say, Providence is kind of hard to burn down that old mausoleum of mine. I guess I'm too old to keep it. Maybe you're right, Jean Louise. This is a settled neighborhood. You've been around. You've never been around young folks, have you? Yes'm. At school? I mean young grown-ups. You're lucky, you know. You and Jim have the benefit of your father's age, but your father, if your father was 30, you'd find life quite different. I sure would. Atticus can't do anything. You'd be surprised, Miss Maudie. There's some life in him yet. What can he do? Well, he can make somebody's will so airtight nobody meddle with it. Shoot. Well, did you know he's the best checker player in town? While down at the landing when we were coming up, Ask Finch could beat everybody on both sides of the river. Good lord, Miss Molly. Jim and I beat him all the time. Well, it's about time you found out. It's because he lets you in. Did you know that he can play a Jew's harp? This modern accomplishment served me even well. Served me even more ashamed of him. Well, I said. Well, what, Miss Maudie? Well, nothing. Nothing, seem, nothing seems all that you'd be proud of him. Can't everybody play a Jew's harp? Now, Keep me out of the way of the carpenters. You better be getting home. I gotta put my azaleas in. And you, I can't watch you. Plank might hit you some. So I went into the backyard and found Jim plugging away at a tin can. Which s- seemed stupid for all the blue jays around. I returned to the front yard and busied myself about two hours erecting a complicated breastwork on the side of the porch consisting of a tire, an orange crate, the laundry hamper, a porch chair, the small U.S. flag Jim gave me from the popcorn box. When Atticus came home for dinner, he found me crouched, aiming across the street. What you shooting at? Miss Maudie's rear end. Atticus turned and my generous target was bending over in the bushes. He pushed his hat to the back of his head and crossed the street. Maudie, he called. You better, I better warn you, you're in considerable peril. Miss Maudie straightened up and looked towards me. She said, Atticus, you are the devil from hell. When Atticus returned, he told me to break camp. Don't me, don't you ever let me catch you pointing that gun at anybody again he said i wish my father was a devil from hell which i sounded at which sounded out capernaum on the subject mr finch 
Why, you can do lots of things. Like what, I asked. Calpurnia scratched her head. Well, I don't rightly know yet. Jim underlined it when he asked Atticus if he was going to go out for the meth go out for the Methodists and Atticus said he'd break his neck if he did he's too old to play for that sort of thing the Methodists were trying to pay off their church mortgage and they had challenged the Baptists to a da game of touch football everybody's father town's father's playing it seemed except Atticus Jim said he didn't even want to go but he was unable to res resist football in any form and gloomily watched from the sidelines with Atticus and me watching Cecil Jacobs' father make touchdowns for the Baptists. One Saturday, Jim and I decided to go exploring with our air rifle to see if we could find a rabbit or squirrel. We'd gone about 500 yards past the, the Radley place when I noticed Jim squinting down in the street turned his head one side and looking at it from the corner of his eyes. What you looking at? That old dog down yonder, he said. That's old Tim Johnson, ain't it? Yeah. Tim Johnson was the property of Harry Johnson, who drove the Mobile bus and lived on the southern edge of town. Tim was a liver-colored bird dog, the pet of Maycomb. What's he doing? I don't know, Scout. We better get home. Oh, Jim, it's February. I don't care. I'm going to call Cal. We raced home, ran into the kitchen. Cal, said Jim, can you come here a minute to down the sidewalk for a minute? What, Jim? I can't come down to the sidewalk every time you want me. No, there's something wrong with the old dog down yonder. Calpurnia sighed. I, I can't wrap up any dog's foot now. There's some gauze in the bathroom. Go and go, do it yourself. Jim shook his head. He's sick, Cal. Something's wrong with him. What's he doing? Trying to catch his tail? No. He's doing like this. And Jim gulped like a goldfish, hunched his shoulders, and twitched his torso. He going like that, only not meaning to. Are you telling me a story, Jim Finch? Calpurnia's voice hardened. No, Cal. I swear I'm not. Was he running? No. Just moseying along, so slow you can hardly tell it. Coming this way. Calpurnia rinsed her hands and followed Jim to the yard. I don't see any dogs, she said. She followed us behind the Radley place and looked where Jim pointed. Tim Johnson was not more than a speck in the distance, but he was closer to us. He walked erratically, as if his right legs were shorter than his left. He reminded of a car stuck in a sandbag. He's gone all lopsided. Calpurnia stared and then grabbed our shoulders and ran us home. He shut, she shut the wooden door behind us and went to the telephone and shouted, Give me Mr. Finch's office. Mr. Finch, she shouted, this is Cal. I swear to God, there's a mad dog down the street. A piece, he's coming this way. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Finch. I declare he is. Tim Johnson. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. He hung up and shook her head when we tried to ask her what Atticus had said. She rattled the telephone hook and said, Miss Ula May, now ma'am, I'm through talking to Mr. Finch. Now 
Don't connect me no more. Listen, Miss Ola May, if you could call Miss Rachel, Miss Stephanie Crawford, or whoever's got a phone on this street, tell them a mad dog's coming. Please, ma'am. Calpurnia, listen. I know it's February, Miss Ula May, but I know a mad dog when I see one. Please, hurry. Calpurnia looked at Jim. Radley got a phone? Jim looked in the book and said, No, they won't come out anyway, Cal. I don't care, I'm going to tell them. She ran right up to the front porch, Jim and I at her heels. You stay in that house. She yelled. Calpurnia's message had been received by the neighborhood, and every door within our range was closed tight. We saw no trace of Jim, Tim Johnson. We watched Calpurnia running towards the Radley place, holding up her skirt and apron above her knees. She went to the front steps and banged on the door. She ain't got no answer. She shouted, Mr. Nathan, Mr. Arthur, mad dog coming, mad dog coming. She's supposed to supposed to go round and back, I said. Jim shook her head. Don't make no difference now. Calpurnia pounded on the door in vain, but no one acknowledged her warning. No one seemed to have heard it. Calpurnia sprinted to the back porch. Black Ford swung into the driveway. Atticus and Mr. Heck Tate got out. Mr. Heck Tate was the sheriff of Macomb County. He was as tall as Atticus, but thinner. He had a long nose, wore boots with shiny metal eye holes, Boot pants and a lumber jacket. He had a row of bullets. His belt had a roll of a row of bullets sticking to it. He carried a heavy rifle. When he and Atticus reached the porch, Jim opened the door. Stay inside, son, said Atticus. Where is he, Cal? He ought to be here by now, said Calpurnia, pointing down the street. Not running, is he? Nah, sir, he's in a twitching rage, Mr. Heck. Should we go after him, Heck? Asked Atticus. We better wait, Mr. Finch. They usually go in a straight line, but you never can tell. He might follow the curb and hope he does, or he'll go straight into the Radley's backyard. Wait a minute. You don't think he'll get in the Radley's yard, said Atticus. Vince will stop him. He'll probably follow the road. I thought Mad Dogs foamed at the mouth galloped and leaped and lunged at our throats. Thought, thought they did it in August. Had Tim Johnson behaved thus, I could have, I would have been less frightened. Nothing seemed more deadly than a deserted waiting street. The trees were still, the mockingbirds were silent. The carpenters at Miss Maudie's house had vanished. I heard Mr. Tate sniff and blow his nose. I saw him shift his gun to the crook of his arm. I saw Miss Stephanie's Crawford face framed in the glass window of her front house. Miss Maudie appeared and stood beside her. Atticus put his foot on the rung of a chair and rubbed his hand slowly on his thigh. There he is. He said softly. Tim Johnson came into sight, walking dazedly in the outer rim of the curve parallel to the Radley house. Look at him, whispered Miss Jim. Mr. Heck said they walked in a straight line. He can't even stay in the road. He looks more sick than anything, I said. Let anything get in front of him and he'll come straight at it. Mr. Tate put his hand on his forehead and leaned forward. He's got it all right, Mr. Finch. Miss 
Tim Johnson was advancing at a snail's pace, but he wasn't playing or sniffing at the foliage. He seemed dedicated to one course, motivated by an invisible force that was inching towards us. He could see him shivering like a horse shedding flies. His jaw opened and shut. He was a list, but he was being pulled gradually toward us. He's looking for a place to die, said Jim. Mr. Tate turned around. Oh, he's far from dead, Jim. He ain't gotten started yet. Jim, Tim Johnson reached the side street, ran in front of the Radless place. What remained of his poor mind made him pause and seem to consider which road to take. He made a few hesitant steps, stopped in front of the Radley gate, tried to turn around but was having difficulty. Atticus said, he's, he's within range, heck. You better get him before he goes down that side street. Lord knows who's around that corner. Go inside, Cal. Calpurnia opened the screen door, latched it behind her, and then held on to the hook. She tried to block Jim and me with her body, but we wanted to look from beneath her arms. Take him, Mr. Finch. Mr. Tate handed the rifle to Atticus. Jim and I nearly fainted. Don't waste time, Heck, said Atticus. Go on. Mr. Finch, this is one-shot job. Atticus shook his head vehemently. Don't just stand there, Heck. He won't wait there all day for you. For God's sake, Mr. Finch, look where he is, miss. And you'll go straight into the Radley house. I can't shoot that well, and you know it. I haven't shot a gun in thirty years. Mr. Tate almost threw the rifle at Attica. And I'd feel mighty comfortable if you did it now, he said. In a fog, Jim and I watched our father take the gun, walk slowly out into the middle of the street. He walked quickly, but he moved like an underwater swimmer. He had time to slow to a nauseating cur uh, crawl. When Atticus raised his glasses, Calpurnia murmured, Sweet Jesus, help him, and put her hands on her cheeks. Atticus pushed his glasses up to his forehead. They slipped down. He dropped them in the street. In the silence, I heard them crack. Atticus rubbed his eyes and chin. We saw him blink hard. In front of the rattly gate, Tim Johnson had made what self made up what was left of his mind. He finally turned himself around to pursue his original course up our street. He made two steps forward and stopped, raised his head, saw his body go rigid with movements so swift they seemed simultaneously Atticus hand yanked the ball tip levers he brought the gun to his shoulder the rifle cracked Jim John Tim Johnson leaped and flopped over crumpled on the sidewalk in a brown and white heap he didn't know what hit him Mr. Tate jumped off the porch and ran to the Radley place he stopped in front of the dog squatted turned around and taped his finger on the forehead just above his left eye. You were a little to the right, Mr. Finch, he called. Always was, answered Atticus. If I had my druthers, I'd take a shotgun. He scooped up, picked up his glasses, ground the broken lizened powder under his heel, and went to Mr. Tate, looking down at Tim Johnson. Doors opened one by one. The neighborhood came alive. Miss Maudie walked down the steps with Miss Crawford. Jim was paralyzed. 
I pinched him to get moving, but Atticus called to us. He said, Stay where you are. When Mr. Tate and Atticus returned to the yard, Mr. Tate was smiling. I'll have Zebo collect him, he said. You haven't forgot much, Mr. Finch. It says it never leaves you. Atticus was silent. Atticus? Said Jim. Yeah. Nothing. I saw that one shot Finch. I saw that one shot Finch. Atticus wheeled around and faced Miss Maudie. They looked at one another. Without saying anything, Atticus got in the sheriff's car. Come here, he said to Jim. Do not go near that dog, you understand? Do not go near him. He's as dangerous, dead as alive. Yes, sir, said Jim. Atticus. What, son? Nothing. What's the matter with you? Boy, can't you talk, said Mr. Tate, grinning at Jim. Didn't you know your daddy? Hush, heck, said Atticus. Let's go back to town. When they drove away, Jim and I went to see Miss Stephanie Cry. We went to Miss Stephanie Cry. Stephanie's front steps. We was waiting for Zebo to arrive in the garbage truck. Jim sat in numb confusion. Miss Stephanie said, "Uh, uh, uh. Who that thought a mad dog in February? Maybe he wasn't mad. Maybe he's just crazy." I hate to see Harry Johnson's face when he gets in from his mobile run and find Atticus Finch has shot his dog. Betty was just full of fleas from somewhere. Miss Maudie and Miss Stephanie be singing a different tune if Miss Ch Tim Johnson was still coming up the street, and they'd find out soon enough they'd send his head to Montgomery. Jim became vaguely articulate. Did you see him, Scout? Did you see him just standing there, all of a sudden, just relaxed? And it looked like, it looked like that gun was a part of him. He did it so quick, like, I have aimed for ten minutes before I hit something. Miss Maudie grinned wickedly. Well now, Miss Jean Louise, she said, think, still think your father can't do anything? Still ashamed of him? No, I said weak, weak, meekly. Forget to tell you the other day that besides playing the Jew's heart, Atticus Finch the deadliest shot in Macomb County in his time. Dead shot, echoed Jim. That's what I said, Jim Finch. Guess you change your tune now. The very idea didn't even know his nickname was old one shot when he was a boy. Why down at the landing, when he was coming up, he shot fifteen times and hit fourteen doves. He'd complain about wasting ammunition. He never said anything about it. Never said anything about it, did he? No, ma'am. Wonder why he never goes hunting now, I said. Maybe I can tell you. Miss Maudie, if your father's anything, he is civilized in his heart. Markmanship is a gift of God, a talent. Oh, you have to practice to make it perfect, but shooting is different from playing the piano or the like. I think maybe he put a 
He put his gun down when he realized that God had given him an unfair advantage over most living things. I guess he decided he wouldn't shoot until he had to. And he had to today. Looks like he'd be proud of it, I said. People in their right minds never take pride in their talents, said Miss Maudie. We saw Zebo drive up. He took a pitchfork from the back of the garbage truck and gingerly lifted Jim Johnson. He pitched the dog into the truck, then poured something from a gallon jug on it to the spot where Tim fell. Don't y'all come over here for a while, he called. When we went home, I told Jim we didn't have to talk about we really have to talk about something at school on Monday. Jim turned on me. Don't say anything about it, Scout, he said. What? I certainly am. Ain't everybody's daddy's deadliest shot in Macomb County. Jim said, I reckon if he wanted us to know about it, he would have told us about it. If he was proud of it, he'd have told us. Maybe it just slipped his mind, I said. Nah, Scout. It's something you wouldn't understand. Atticus is real old, but I wouldn't care if he couldn't do anything. I wouldn't care if he couldn't do a blessed thing. I picked up a rock and threw it jubilantly at the car house. Running after it, he called back. Atticus is a gentleman, just like me. Chapter 11 When we were small, Jim and I confined our activities to the southern neighborhood. But when I was well into the second grade at school and tormenting Boo Radley had become passe, the business section of Maycomb drew us frequently up the street past the real property of Miss Henry Lafayette Du Bois. It was impossible to go into town without passing her house unless we wished to walk a mile out of her the way. Previous minor encounters with her left me with no desire for more. But Jim and I, we had said, Jim said I had to grow up sometime. Mr. Boys lived, Mr. Boys lived alone except for a Negro girl in, cost, in constant attendance. Two doors up from the street from us in a house with steep front steps, a dog trot hall. She was very old. She spent most of each day in bed and the rest of it in a wheelchair. It was rumored she kept a CSA pistol concealed among her numerous shawls and wraps. Jim and I hated her. If she was on the porch when we passed, we raked by her with a wrathful gaze. Subjected to ruthless interrogation regarding our behavior and given a melancholy prediction on what we would, what we'd amount to when we grew up, which was always nothing. We had long ago given up the idea of walking past her house on the opposite side of the street. That only made her raise her voice and let the whole neighborhood in on it. We could do nothing to please her, and if I said suddenly as I could, Hey, Mr. Boys, I would always receive for an answer. Don't you say hey to me, you ugly girl. You say good afternoon, Mr. Boys. She was vicious. Once, she heard Jim refer to our father as Atticus, and her, her reaction was apologetic. 
popletic. Sorry. Popletic. Besides being the sassiest, most dick disrespectful mutts who ever passed her way, we were told that it was quite a pity that we call our father had not remarried after my mother's death. A lovelier lady than our mother never lived, she said, and it was heartbreaking the way Atticus Fence let her child children run wild. I did not remember our mother, but Jim did. He would tell me stories about her sometimes, and he went livid when Mr. Boy shot us this message. Jim, having survived Boo Radley, a mad dog, and other terrors, had concluded that it was cowardly to stop at Miss Rachel's front steps and wait, and had decreed we had we must run as far as the post office corner each evening to meet Atticus coming from work. Countless evenings, Atticus would find Jim furious at something Mr. Boyce had said when we went by. Easy does it, son, Atticus would say. She's an old lady, and she's ill. You just gotta hold your head up high and be a gentleman. Whatever she says to you, it is not your job to make, it is not your job not to let her make you mad. Jim said she must not be very sick where she hollered so. When the three of us came to her house, Atticus would sweep off his hat and wave gallantly to her and say, Good evening, Mr. Boyce. You look like a picture this evening. I never heard Atticus say a picture of what? He would tell her the courthouse news and say he hoped with all his heart she would have a good day tomorrow. He would return his hat to his head, swing me up onto his shoulders in her very presence, and we would walk home in the twilight. So it was times like these when I thought my father, who hated guns and had never been in any wars, was the bravest man who ever lived. The day after Jim's twelfth birthday, his money was burning in his pockets, so we headed for town in the early afternoon. Jim thought he had enough to buy a miniature steam engine for himself and a twirling baton for me. I had a long eye on that baton. It was at V. V.J. Elmore's. It, it was beckoned with sequins and tinsel. It cost 17 cents. It was then my burning ambition to grow up and twirl with the Maycomb County High School Band, having developed my talent where I could throw up the stick and almost catch it coming down. I had caused Calpurnia to deny my entrance to the house every time she saw me with a stick in my hand. I felt that I could overcome this defeat with a real baton. And I thought it was very generous of Jim to buy me one. Mr. Boyce was stationed on her porch when we went by. Where are you two going this time of day, she shouted. Playing hooky, I suppose. I'll just call the principal and tell her. She put her hands on the wheels of her wheelchair and executed a perfect right face. Oh, it's Saturday, Mr. Boyce, said Jim. Makes no difference it's Saturday, she said, obscurely. I wonder if your father knows where you are. Mr. Boyce... We've been going into town by ourselves since we were this high. Jim placed his hand about two feet above the sidewalk. Don't you lie to me, Jeremy Finch, she yelled. Marty Atkinson told me you broke down her 
up her nog arm this morning. She said she was going to tell your father and then wish you never saw the light of day. If you aren't sent to reform school by next week, my name's not Du Bois. Jim, who had not been near Miss Maudie's Scuppernog Arbor since last summer, and who knew Miss Maudie would not tell Atticus if he had, issued a general denial. Don't contradict me, boy, said Mr. Boys. And you, she pointed an arthritic finger at me. What are you doing in overalls? You should be in a dress and a camisole, young lady. You're going to grow up waiting on tables if somebody doesn't change your ways. A bench waiting on tables at the OK Cafe. Ha! I was terrified. The OK Cafe was a dim organi organization on the north side of the square. I grabbed Jim's hand, but he shook me loose. Come on, Scout, he whispered. Don't pay any attention to her. Hold your head up high and be a gentleman. Mr. Boys, but Mr. Boys held us. Not only a finch waiting on tables, one in the courthouse lawing for niggers. Jim stiffened. Mr. Boys' shot had gone home, and she knew it. Yes, indeed. What has this world come to when a finch does his, goes against his raisin? I, I'll tell you. She put a finger to her mouth, and she drew it away, and she trailed a long sliver of thread of saliva. Your father's no better than the niggas and trash he works for. Jim was scarlet. I pulled at his sleeve, and we followed up the sidewalk on our, on our family's moral degradation and the major premise in which half the finches were in the asylum anyway. But if our mother were living, we would not have come to such a state. I wasn't sure what Jim resented most, but I took an umbrage at Mr. Boy's assessment of the family's mental hygiene. I had come almost accustomed to hearing insults aimed at Atticus, but this one was coming from an adult. Except for her remarks about Atticus, Mr. Boy's attack was only routine. There was a hint of summer in the air, and in the shadows it was cool, but the sun was warm, which meant good times were coming. No school, and Dill. Jim bought his steam engine and we went by Elmore's for my baton. Jim took no pleasure in his acquisition. He jammed it in his pocket, walked silently beside me towards home. On the way home, I nearly hit Mr. Link Diaz, who said, Look out now, Scout! When I missed a toss and we approached Mr. Boys's house, my baton was grinding me from having picked it up out of the dirt so many times. She was not on the porch. In later years, I sometimes wondered exactly what made Jim do it. What made him break the bonds of you just must be a gentleman, son, and the phase of self-conscious rectitude he had recently entered. Jim had probably stood as much gruff about Atticus, lawing for niggers as I had, and I took it for granted that he kept his temper. He had a naturally tranquil disposition and a slow fuse. 
the time, however, I thought the only explanation for what he did was that for, for a few minutes he simply went mad. What Jim did was something I'd do as a matter of course, had I not been under Atticus's indirect, which assumed, included not fighting old ladies. We had come to her gate when Jim snatched my baton and ran, flailing wildly up the steps into Mrs. Dubois's front yard, forgetting everything Atticus had said, forgetting that she packed a pistol under her shawls, forgetting that if Miss Dubois missed, her girl Jessie probably wouldn't. He did not even begin to calm down, and he had cut down all the tops of the camellia bush Mrs. Dubois owned until the ground was littered with green buds and leaves. He bent my baton against his knee, snapped it in two, and threw it down. By that time, I was shrieking. Jim yanked my hair, said he didn't care, he'd do it again if he got the chance, and if I didn't shut up, he'd pull every hair out of my head. I didn't shut up, and he kicked me. I lost my balance and fell on my face. Jim picked me up roughly, but he looked like he was sorry. There was nothing to say. We did not choose to meet Atticus coming home that evening. We sulked around the kitchen until Calpurnia threw us out. By some voodoo system, Calpurnia seemed to know all about it. She was less than she was a less than satisfactory source of patillion, but she did give Jim a hot biscuit and butter, which he tore in half and shared with me. It tasted like cotton. We went into the living room and picked up a football magazine and found a picture of Dixie Howe, showed it to Jim and said, hey, this looks like you. That was probably the nicest thing I could say to him, but it was no help. He sat by the windows, hunched down in the rocking chair, scowling and waiting. Daylight faded. Two geological ages later, we heard the soles of Atticus's shoes scrape the front steps. The screen door slammed and there was a pause. Atticus was at the hat rack in the hall and we heard him call, Jim? His voice was like the winter wind. Atticus switched on the ceiling light in the living room. He found us there, frozen still. He carried my baton in one hand, its filthy yellow tassel trailed on the rug, and held out his other hand, which contained fat camellia buds. Jim, he said, are you responsible for this? Yes, sir. Why'd you do it? Jim said softly. She said you lawed for niggers and trash. You did this because she said that? Jim's lip lips moved, but his yes sir was inaudible. Son, I have no doubt that you've been annoyed by your contemporaries about me lawing for niggers, as you say. But to do something like this to a sick old lady is inexcusable. I strongly advise you go down and have a talk with Mr. Boyce, said Atticus. Come straight home afterwards. Jim did not move. Go on, I said. I followed Jim out of the living room. Come back here, Atticus said to me. I came back. Atticus picked up the mobile press and sat down in the rocking chair Jim had vacated. 
For the life of me, I could not understand how he could sit there in cold blood and read a newspaper when his only son stood an excellent chance of being murdered with a Confederate Army relic. Of course, Jim antagonized me sometimes until I wanted to kill him, but when it came down to it, he was all I had. Atticus did not seem to realize this, or if he did, he did not care. I hated him for that. But when you're in trouble, you become easily tired, and soon I was hiding in his laps. His arms were around me. You're getting mighty big to be rocked, he said. You don't care what happens to him, I said. You just send him on to get shot when all he was doing was standing up for you. Attic pushed my head under his chin. It's not time to worry yet, he said. I never thought Jim would be the one to lose his head over this. I thought I'd have more trouble with you. I said, I didn't know why I didn't know why we had to keep our heads anyway. Nobody at school had to keep their heads about about anything. Scout, Atticus said, when summer comes and you have to keep your head about far worse things, and it's not fair for you and Jim, I know that. But sometimes we have to make the best of things and the way we conduct ourselves when the chips are down. Well, all I can say is, when you and Jim are grown, maybe you'll look back on this with some compassion and some feeling that I didn't let you down. This case, Tom Robinson's case, is something that goes down to the essence of a man's conscience. Scout, I couldn't go to church and worship God if I didn't help that man. Atticus, you must be wrong. How's that? Well, most folks seem to think you're, they're right and you're wrong. Well, they're entitled, and certainly entitled to think that. And they're entitled to full respect to their opinions, said Atticus. But before I can live with other folks, I gotta live with myself. And one thing doesn't abide by the majority rule is a person's conscience. When Jim returned, he found me still sitting in Atticus's lap. Well, son, asked Atticus. He set me on my feet, and I made a silent, secret reconnaissance to Jim. He seemed to be all in one piece, but he had a queer look on his face. Perhaps she had given him a dose of calomel. I cleaned it up for her and said I was sorry, but I ain't, and that I'd work on him every Saturday and make him try and grow back again. There was no point in saying sorry if you weren't, said Atticus. Jim, she's old and ill. You can't hold her responsible for what she says and does. Of course, I'd rather she have said it to me than either of you, but we can't have our druthers. Jim seemed fascinated by a rose on the carpet. Atticus, he said, he wants me to read to her. Read to her? Yes, sir. Wants me to come by every afternoon after school and Saturdays and read aloud for her for two hours. Atticus, do I have to? Certainly. But she wants me to do it for a month. Then you'll do it for a month. Jim planted his big toe delicately in the center of the rose and pressed it in. Finally, he said, Atticus, 
It's all right on the sidewalk, but inside it's all dark and creepy. There's shadows and things on the ceiling. Atticus smiled grimly. That should appeal to your imagination. Just pretend you're inside the Radley house. following Monday afternoon, Jim and I climbed the front steps to Mr. Boyd's house and padded down the open hallway. Jim, armed with Ivanhoe and full of superior knowledge, knocked on the second door to the left. Mr. Boyd's, he called. Jesse opened the wooden door and unlatched the screen. Is that you, Jim Finch, she said. You got your sister with you? I, I don't know. Let them both in, Jesse, said Mr. Boyce. Jesse admitted us, and we went off to the kitchen. An oppressive odor met, met us when we crossed the threshold, an odor I had met many times in rain-rotted gray houses with their char coal oil lamps, water dippers, and unbleached domestic sheets. It always made me afraid, expectant, and watchful. In the corner of the room was a brass bed, and in the bed was Mr. Boyce. I wonder if Jim's activities had put her there. For a moment, I felt sorry for her. She was lying under a pile of quilts and looked almost friendly. There was a marble-top washstand by her on the bed. There was a glass with a teaspoon in it, a red ear syringe, a box of cotton, absorbent cotton, and a steel alarm clock standing on three tiny legs. So you brought that dirty little sister of yours too, huh? She hurt was her greeting. Jim said quietly, my sister ain't dirty and I ain't scared of you. Although I noticed his knees shaking. I was expecting a tirade, but all she said was, you may convince reading, Jeremy. Jim sat in the cane bottom chair and opened Ivanhoe. I pulled out another and sat behind, beside him. Come closer, said Mr. Boyce. Come to the side of the bed. We moved our chairs forward. That was the nearest I've ever been to her, and the thing I wanted to do most was move my chair back again. She was horrible. Her face was the color of a dirty pillowcase, and the corners of her mouth glistened wet, which inched like a glacier down the deep grooves of her enclosing chin. Old age liver spots dotted her cheeks, and her pale eyes had black pinpoint pupils. Her hands were knobby, and the cuticles were grown up over her fingernails. Her bottom plate was not in, and her upper lip protruded. From time to time, she would draw her nether lip to her upper plate and carry her chin with it. This made the wet move faster. I didn't look any more. Than I had to. Jim reopened Ivanhoe and began reading. I tried to keep up with him, but he read too fast. When Jim came to a word I, he didn't know, he skipped it. But Mr. Boys would catch him and make him spell it out. Jim read for perhaps Jim read for perhaps twenty minutes. During the time I looked at the soot stained mantelpiece out of the window. Anywhere to keep from looking at her. 
As he, as, I, as he read along, I noticed that Mr. Boyd's corrections grew fewer and farther between, that Jim had even left out one sentence dangling in midair. She was not listening. I looked towards the bed. Something had happened to her. She lay on her back with her quilts up to her chin, only her head shoulders were visible. Her head moved slowly from side to side. From time to time she would open her mouth wide and I could see her tongue indulate faintly. Cords of saliva would collect in her lips and she would draw them in, then open her mouth again. Her mouth seemed to have a private existence all on its own. It worked separate and apart from the rest of her, in and out, in and out, like a clam hole at low, low tide. Occasionally, it would say, Psst, like some vicious substance coming to a boil. I pulled Jim's sleeve. He looked at me and then at the bed. His head made a regular sweep towards us. And Jim said, Mr. Boys, you all right? She didn't hear him. The alarm clock went off and scared us stiff. A minute later, nerves still tingling, Jim and I were on the sidewalk for the way home. We did not run away. Jessie sent us. Before the clock wound down, she was in the room, pushing Jim and me out of it. Shoo, she said. You all go home. Jim hesitated at the door. It's time for her medicine, Jessie said. And the door swung shut behind us, and I saw Jessie walking quickly towards Mr. Boyes's bed. It was only 3.45 when we got home, so Jim and I dropped kicked in the backyard until it was time to meet Atticus. Atticus had two yellow pencils for me and a football magazine for Jim, which I suppose was a silent reward for our first day session with Mr. Boyes. Jim told us what happened. Did she frighten you? Said I, asked Atticus. No, sir, said Jim. But she's so nasty. She has fits or something. She spits a lot. She can't help that. People are sick. They don't look nice sometimes. Well, scare me, I said. Atticus looked at me over his glasses. You don't have to go with Jim, you know. The next afternoon at Mr. Boy's was the same as the first, and so was the next, and gradually a pattern emerged. Everything began normally, that is. Mr. Boy's would hound Jim for a while on her favorite subjects, her camellias, our father's nigger-loving propensities, and she would grow in increasingly silent, then go away from us. The alarm clock would ring, Jessie would shoo us out, and the rest of the day was ours. Atticus... I said one evening, what exactly is a nigger lover? Atticus' face was grave. Has someone been calling you that? No, sir. Mr. Boyes calls you that. She warms up to us every afternoon by calling you that. Francis said it to me last Christmas. That's when I first heard it. Is that the reason you jumped on him? Asked, asked Atticus. Well, yes, sir. Then why are you asking me what it means. I tried to explain to Atticus that it wasn't so much what Francis said that infuriated me. It was just the way he said it. It was like he had said a snot nose or something. Scout, said Atticus, nigger lover is just one of those terms that don't mean anything, like snot nose. 
It's hard to explain. Ignorant, trashy people use it when they think somebody's favoring Negroes above themselves. It slipped into usage when people like ourselves, when they want when they want a common ugly term to label somebody. So you really you aren't really a nigger lover then, are you? I certainly am. I do my best to love everybody. I'm hard put sometimes, baby, but I never an insult to be called what somebody thinks is a bad name. It just shows how poor that person is. It doesn't hurt you. So don't let Mr. Boys get you down. She has enough troubles of her own. One afternoon, a month later, later, Jim was plowing his way through Sir Walter Scout, as Jim called him, and Mr. Boys was correcting him at every turn. There was a knock at the door. Come in, she screamed. Atticus came in. She went to the bed and took Mr. Boys' hand. I was coming from the office and didn't see the children. I thought they might be here. Mr. Boy smiled at him. For the life of me, I could not figure out how she could bring herself to speak to him when she hated him so. Do you know what time it is, Atticus? She said. Exactly 14 minutes past 5. The alarm clock is set for 5.30. I want you to know that. It suddenly came to me that every day we had been staying a little longer at Mr. Boy's, and that alarm clock had been going off a few minutes later every day, and that she was well into one of her fits by the time it sounded. Today, she had antagonized Jim for nearly two hours without in, with no intention of having a fit, and I felt hopelessly trapped. The, alar the alarm clock was the symbol for our release, and... If one day it doesn't ring, what should we do? I have a feeling that Jim's reading days are numbered, said Atticus. Only a week longer, I think, she said, just to make sure. Jim rose, but, but, Atticus put out his hand and Jim went silent. On the way home, Jim said he had to do it for just, for just a month, and the month was up, and that was not fair. Just one more week, son, said Atticus. No, said Jim. Yes, said Atticus. The following week found us back at Mr. Boy's. The alarm clock had ceased sounding, but Mr. Boy's would release us. That'll do. So late in the afternoon, Atticus would be home reading the paper by the time we returned. Although her fits had passed off, she was in every other way her old self. When Sir Walter Scott became involved in lengthy descriptions of moats and castles, Mr. Boys would become bored and pick on us. Jamie Finch, I told you you'd live to regret tearing up my camellias. You regret it now, don't you? Jim said he certainly did. Thought you'd kill my snow on the mountain, too, didn't you? Well, Jesse says the top's grown back. Next time you'll know how, what to do, you, you'll know how to do it right, won't you? You gotta pull it up by the roots, won't you? Jim said he certainly would. Don't mutter at me, boy. You hold, your, you hold up your head and say, yes, ma'am. Don't, don't guess you feel like holding it up, though your father, with your father, what he is.
Jim's chin would come up and he would gaze at Mr. Boys with a face devoid of resentment. Through the weeks, he had cultivated an expression of polite and detached interest. He would present her in an answer to her most blood-curdling inventions. The last day had come when Mr. Boys said, That'll do. One afternoon, she said, And that's all. Good day to you. And it was over. We bounded down the sidewalk on a spree of sheer relief, leaping and howling. The spring was a good one. The days grew longer and gave us more playing time. Jim's mind was occupied mostly by vital statistics of every college football player in the nation. Every night, Atticus would read us the sports pages of the newspaper. Alabama might go to the Rose Bowl again this year, judging from its prospects. Not one of the names we could pronounce. Atticus was in the middle of Wendy Seaton's column one evening when the telephone rang. He, let, he answered it went to the hat rack in the hall. I'm going down to Mr. Boy's for a while. I won't be long. But Atticus stayed away long past my bedtime. When he returned, he was carrying a candy box. Atticus sat down in the in the living room and put the box on the floor beside his chair. What'd she want? asked Jim. We hadn't seen Mr. Boys in over a month. She hadn't been on the porch any more than we had passed. She's dead, son, said Atticus. She died a few minutes ago. Oh, said Jim. Well? Well, it's right, said Atticus. She's not suffering anymore. She was sick for a long time. Son, didn't you know what her fits were? Jim shook his head. Mr. Boys was a morphine addict, said Atticus. She took the painkiller for years. The doctor put it on her. She'd spend the rest of her life on it and died without so much agony. But she was too contrary. Sir, said Jim. Atticus said, just before, just before your escapade, she called to make, she called me to make her will. Mr. Reynolds told her she had only a few months to live, and her business orders were in perfect order, but she said there's one thing out of order. What was that? Jim was perplexed. She said she was going to leave this world beholden to nothing or nobody. Jim, when when you're sick as she was, it was all right to take anything to make it easier. But it was not all right for her. She said it was meant to break her. Break her of it before she died. And that's what she did. Jim said, you mean that's what her fits were? Yes, that's what they were. Most of the time you were reading to her, I doubt she heard a word she, you said. Her whole mind and body concentrated on that alarm clock. If you hadn't fallen into her hands, I would have made you go read to her anyway. It may, it may have been some distraction. There may have been another reason. Did she die free? asked Jim. As mountaineer, said Atticus, she was conscious to the last, almost conscious. He smiled. And cantankerous? 
She still disapproved heartily of my doings and said I'd probably spend the rest of my life bailing you two out of jail. She had Jesse fix you this box. Atticus reached down and picked up the candy box and handed it to Jim. Jim opened the box. Inside, it was surrounded by wads of damp cloth, cotton, was a white, waxy, perfect camellia. It was a snow on the mountain. Jim's eyes nearly popped out of his head. <laughs> oh, hell devil! Oh, hell devil! He screamed, flinging it down. Why can't she just leave me alone? In a flash, Atticus was up and standing over him. Jim buried his face in Atticus's shirt front. Shh, he said. I think it was her way of telling you everything is all right now, Jim. Everything is all right. You know, she was a great lady. A lady? Jim raised his head. His face was scarlet. After all those things she said about you, a lady? She was. She had her own views about things, and a lot different from mine, maybe, son. I told you that if you hadn't lost your head, I would have made you go read to her. I wanted you to see something about her. I wanted you to see what real courage is, instead of getting the idea that a courage is a man with a gun in his hand. It is when you know you've been licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter. You rarely win, but sometimes you do. And Miss Du Bois won, all 98 pounds of her. According to her views, she died beholden to nothing and nobody. She was the bravest person I ever knew. Jim picked up the candy box, threw it in the fire. He picked up the camellia, and I went off to bed, saw him fingering the wide petals. Atticus was reading the paper. that's the end of part one we're going to go into part two next and in part two in these next chapters I want you to listen hard to Atticus Finch Atticus Finch is probably the most important figure in American literature I want you to listen to his words I want you to pay attention to his actions and I want you to see how he raises his children. He is probably the bravest man. So, Atticus is, is the character uh, in, in this part that you want to pay attention to. His words and his actions. He is not only brave, but he is kind. And that is what he's teaching his children. So, with that being said, I'll start part two very soon. Alright, good evening.